careful now. Boing. So cool to be playing vinyl. Vinyl. Took the record off the turntable. You ready for this? Welcome to Behind the Vinyl. Here's your host, Stu Jeffries. Welcome to Behind the Vinyl, the podcast. I'm the aforementioned Stu. Thanks for joining me as we continue to feature artists playing their biggest hits on a turntable and giving us the backstory. Coming up, singer-songwriter-producer Midge Ewer gives us the goods on his song Dancing With Tears In My Eyes and some of his influences. My favourite album of all time, uh, David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust album. And there's a track on that called Five Years, which is really sad and mournful. And there's a line in it about something about the the radio or a voice in the radio. It, it gave us very dystopian imagery. More from Mid shortly. First up on this episode is Lorraine Segato from the Parachute Club with a song that's not a song. It's a universal anthem of freedom and equality. Here's Lorraine with more. I love the sound of when a needle hits the vinyl. I miss that sound. The first crackle. So... This song begins always either in the studio when you're listening to it or uh, live with a swell of a Prophet 5 sound. It's a rare synthesizer sound that was very popular in the 80s that you don't hear anymore. And uh, there's a couple of signature riffs in this song that people always tell me they, is what they sing back to me. They don't just sing the chorus. They sing this. They always sing the, the bass part back to me. They sing the, the chorus, obviously. And um, one of the interesting things about this track was um, it began with a soca groove. Our drummer, Billy Bryant, who's now passed away, and I had this g- deep love of soca music. We played it all the time in the groups that we had before Parachute Club. And uh, this is our signature sound in a way because it's based on the Caribbean grooves that inspired us. So when we came back from a trip in Trinidad, we'd been perhaps into making our first record maybe about six songs deep. But when it, we were missing a track. And the track that we were missing uh, was a song that was not yet completed, and it was this song. This was one of the last songs that we wrote for our very first record. And what makes it interesting is is that in many ways it's Daniel Lenoir's approach to the production and to the arrangement of this song that makes it what it is. And not a lot of people know that, but. He sort of took the groove and the little bits of pieces we had here and there and he kind of patched them together and he did it in a way, this is before computers, right? So he did it all by hand, you know? Um, little bits of tape here and stuff like that. So it's been about, I don't know, thir- uh, released in 1983, you do the math, over 30 years of a song like this still in the consciousness of people which is always really really surprising i sing it at every concert i do because i know that people want to hear it there was only a short period of time in which i didn't want to sing it and that was right after uh, i disbanded parachute club which was around 1989 to about 1993 i didn't want to 
have anything to do with the material. I just needed a break from it. When I returned to this song, I returned with a renewed energy that was amazing because I really realized how important it was to people for whatever their reasons are. And I started to give deep gratitude and thanks for the fact that people still love the song. And so now it doesn't matter how many times I sing it, I find a new way of doing it. I, we've, uh, we've rearranged this song a million times. We now have a gospel version as well. And it depends on the crowd, you know. Um, and the other interesting piece about this song is that um, I keep telling people I could do a book of Rise Up stories because what happens with this song is that everybody's got a specific memory of where they were when they first heard it and what it meant to them when they, they heard it. Now, I remember this myself. I remember the very first time I heard James Taylor sing Fire and Rain, even though he didn't inspire me as a uh, the kind of music I would write, but he inspired me because I know exactly where I was when I heard that song, right? And so we get a lot of Rise Up stories, and some of them are really, uh, there's a lot of, tragedy in them and a lot of beauty in them like the autistic child who wasn't speaking or talking but started listening to the song and then started singing uh, like the person who had the car accident and used the song as a uh, you know something to motivate them you know and then walked into a concert and said I'm walking now like really small kind of miracles and um, so for me you know when I when I see this I or hear this I I think that somehow I'm not exactly sure why we were given the gift but we were given the gift of this song and I'll just keep singing it until nobody wants to hear it anymore a timeless anthem and great story behind it that was rise up from Lorraine Segato of the parachute club on behind the vinyl the podcast thanks for listening Niagara Falls, Ontario rockers, Honeymoon Suites, Derry Grayan and Johnny D stopped by our studios with their album in tow to go into detail about their hit, New Girl Now. Yeah. We'll roll yeah. it up. Ah, there you go, Derry. It's been a while since I've queued up an album. <clears throat> Anyways, this is the song that started it all, huh? I guess it is. I guess it this, is. Uh, At least there's a singer on it now. I wrote this. Um, I wrote this when I was in college, a few years before I met Johnny, and uh, demoed it myself. And um, some few years later, when I moved to Toronto, I joined Honeymoon Suite, and uh, we were a bar band at that point, doing six nighters and whatnot. And um, we wanted to be an original band, so I had a couple of originals. I played them for Johnny, and uh, he really liked this one and a couple others. And so we started sneaking them into the into the set. With the with the Billy Idol and the flock of seagulls that we had to play, and uh, it just kind of, you know, it's the songs that we told the owners that we didn't play that got us fired. But as long as we could get up on those days, or 45 minute sets, right? If we could make it through the first 45, then uh, the crowds would stay. So, so um, we uh, we ended up demoing the song. We, we, I think we played in Elliott Lake. I remember, forget that, on a Saturday night. I think we drove all night and we got up Sunday morning and went to our producer's house and recorded this song in his basement along with Face to Face and Funny Business. Burnt right out and we, we, we entered it in a contest and it, and it won a contest and uh, got on, on the local radio 
and we ended up long story short we ended up getting our record deal with, yeah, we with had, the demo we had different record companies come out and see our band we had developed a, a following not like a following that sounds sort of silly we developed a crowd you know people liked our band it's cool but uh yeah this is uh well, we were always doing originals on stage, whether they were known or not. When I first met Derry, <clears throat> I had a bunch of songs, and Derry had a bunch of songs, and it's like, what is that? I'm like, what is this? <clears throat> I know I gotta sing that, and that's pretty much where it started. Yeah. Um, as for the recording, um, we did this at, like, I mean, things just after we signed the deal, we were just going crazy. We were so happy to be, you know, all of a sudden a, a real band with, with a record deal. They got us right in the studio. It was actually phase one That's right. in Toronto. And I think we went and cut all the beds in like two weeks. Beds, overdubs, everything, which is unheard of. And I think the budget for that album was like 50 or 60 grand. I mean, we were just banging it out. But that energy, when you listen to this, you can hear... That, that that energy that we had and I hear there's a there's a nervousness in the vocal and one of the reasons for that is nowadays it's all digital right and it's like okay do it again okay do it again but in back in those days you it was like the two inch two tape. inch tape so you're waiting as a vocalist waiting okay 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 so there's a nervousness in it and I, and I hear it now and it's like it's totally, it's totally cool yeah want to get it back get yeah. that two inch tape back out you yeah. know I miss it. I miss it greatly. What a lot of memories right there. Yeah, and I think they even very sped it up a little bit, which well, got made Johnny's voice out. Yeah, <laughs> they did this that very speed thing. It's killing me to this day. It's well, really it, chipmunky because the tempos weren't exactly right, and so they sped them up a little bit. And that, but if it goes too far, then it's but chipmunk Johnny. <laughs> but it worked. It worked. So, yes, it did. There you go. It's uh. It's been it's been a good song for us. That's good the first us. one. Yeah. Honeymoon Suite. Great guys and the band, by the way, still together. The whole band, which is rare these days. Impressive, boys. You're listening to Behind the Vinyl, the podcast. I'm Stu Jeffries, wrapping up this episode with a guy who is certainly not short on talent. Midge Ewer is a producer, writer, singer, musician, and one of the brains behind Do They Know It's Christmas, which he talks about in a past episode of Behind the Vinyl. This time, however, Mitch talks about his song Dancing with Tears in My Eyes, the meaning of the song, his musical inspirations, and much more. Here's Mitch. I haven't heard this recording of Dancing with Tears in My Eyes for a long, long time. I think like most... Uh, most Ultravox tunes. They were born from jams in, um, in rehearsal studios. Billy, the keyboard player, used to always come in with like lovely little chord changes. And you can hear it's a classic lineup. This uh, 1979 when I joined the band. So you've got electronic synthesized bass on this. You've got Warren Can. Uh, Canada's own Warren Can uh, on drums uh, Billy Curry on keyboards there and I'm doing guitar on this and I remember being very very influenced when I was younger my favourite album of all time uh, David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust album and there's a track on that called Five Years which is really sad and mournful 
and there's a line in it about something about the the radio or a voice in the radio or it it gave this very dystopian imagery and I remember that being a really haunting thing and it's probably what turned me on to this kind of audio atmospherics that Ultravox were so good at and um, I had just read a book by a guy called Neville Shute and it was called uh, On the Beach and the, the whole story was set in the 1950s and uh, there'd been a nuclear holocaust and the only people left alive were living in Australia and, uh, and it was a story of all these people who knew that this impending doom was coming towards them and, uh, and what they would choose to do in the last moments of life uh, so I wrote this the lyrics about this uh, about that very subject if you had four minutes left in your life uh, what would you do? And it's quite simple really you can't run away you know, you've got this thing coming towards you so you if you're close enough you get with the people you love and you put on your favourite piece of music which just happens to be four minutes long and you dance with tears in your eyes. Yeah. And people thought Ultravox didn't use guitars. Listen to that. So it was a classic combination. Again, always, everyone always cited Ultravox as a synthesizer band. But we used whatever instrumentation we could. So, as I said on this, piano was very dominant on this. Guitar, synthesized bass, drums. The idea of incorporating every instrumentation that we could get. And we, because of that, we made a, a really unique sound. And strangely, Six years ago, we got back together again after almost 30 years apart. And the moment we plugged in in a rehearsal studio, it sounded like that. Really weird. You can actually hear us using guitar and technology sampling the guitar making these noises we ahead of our time interesting concept what would you do if you had four minutes left to live that's mid-jour on behind the vinyl and that's it for this episode i'm Stu jeffries with a huge thank you for taking time to listen comment share and subscribe we've got a lot of episodes to catch up on if you feel like binging We'll be back with more. This has been Behind the Vinyl, the podcast. Hosted by Stu Jeffries. Audio production courtesy of Doug Morehouse, Dan McIntosh, and Troy McCallum. Thanks for listening.